Our passage this morning is Revelation 21. We're at the end of our series on redemptive history, the story of the gospel throughout scripture from creation and now all the way to the end. This morning we're going to see the most complete picture that scripture gives us of glory. And by glory we mean intense splendor, the highest state of beauty, a proper boasting, a truthful boasting is the way we would talk about glory. Young Christians, young theologians, this is where we're going to live someday. So all I want you to listen for is what part of this place is most exciting and most thrilling to you. And then for adults, for the rest of us, don't just look at the details in the chapter, but look at the whole picture. As we go through the chapter, look for the whole story of the Bible, the whole work of Jesus in this panoramic view. This is the completion the fulfillment, the high point of the gospel of Jesus. Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral... Sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east wall three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 
The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what's detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, you are the exact imprint of the Father's glory. A glory you did not keep all to yourself, but in all of your work, you have been bringing us to this glory. It's a glory you mean to share with us in full, a glory you intend for us to live in. And so this morning, as we hear your gospel, through the new heavens and the new earth, Make our hearts crave the glory reserved for us. Make our hearts long for the glory we are reserved for. And for all these things, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? All of the gospel is driving at the new heavens and the new earth. This is everything that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are after through the ministry of Jesus. In his temptation in the wilderness, hanging from a cross, pushing out of a tomb, Jesus was reaching for the new heavens and the new earth. And this is why psychological preaching, topical preaching, circumstantial preaching doesn't work. Sermon series like God's plan for your finances fall too far short of the new heavens and the new earth. There isn't any of the new creation in sermon series like that. They aim at the wrong target. They aim at how to get by here as if we weren't headed there. So since we're in the new heavens and the new earth, you want to hear what God's plan for your finances is? really is. I shouldn't tell you this on a Sunday that we're going to hear from our financial committee, but here it goes. In the new heavens and the new earth, you can't make money a God. So you can stop worshiping it now. But John, what John sees is a picture of the fullness at the end. 
I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, untamable chaos, was no more. The old world is worn out, and it can't hold what's coming next. What John sees is a brand new world. It's a world made perfect in the perfection of Jesus the Son. The created order is re-perfected in the perfection of Jesus the Son. The end of the gospel story is Jesus doesn't create the world you've always dreamed of. Jesus creates the world you've never dreamed of. Do you have any idea how many utopian communities have been established in the U.S. over the years? Utopia is from the Latin, meaning literally, no place. The name alone should give something away. For some reason, they never work. It's impossible to establish a community without social problems and personal brokenness, but there have been many attempts. In the 1860s, there was a community called New Jerusalem outside Fort Myers, Florida, founded by a man named Cyrus Teed. Teed said it would be the new capital of the world. It succeeded in only being the retirement capital of the world, but the capital of nothing else. There was Oneida, New York, founded in 1848 by John Humphrey Noyes. The community supported itself by manufacturing steel traps for furriers and silverware. It only lasted 40 years. But as the community folded, it replaced itself with a joint stock company, and the company still exists, and you can still buy their silverware. D.H. Lawrence, the British poet and novelist, had plans to establish a utopia outside Taos, New Mexico. He died before he broke ground. There was New Harmony, Indiana, founded by the British industrialist Robert Owen. New Harmony banned the use of all money and no private property was allowed. It was supposed to be a settlement of perfect conformity to one another, but each individual wanted everyone else to conform to him or her. It lasted four years and broke up after constant bickering and fighting. Why do utopian communities never work? I had a professor in seminary who had plans to buy a house in Celebration, Florida. A model community developed by the Disney Company. If anyone can build utopia, or at least the illusion of it, you'd think it would be Disney. My professor abandoned his plans because, he told us, after a few visits, he realized it wasn't any better than any other place in the world. All these people dragged their sin in with them. That's just it. You can fool yourself into thinking that you've escaped the world, but you can't ever escape yourself. And in this life, anyway, where your heart is, there your sin is also. So there is no utopia. But there is the new creation. There is the new heavens and the new earth. The new cosmos made perfect in Jesus. And more, there's the new city in verse 2. Then I saw the holy city 
Cities usually celebrate their sin, not holiness. Then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's not just the created order. The city is made perfect in the perfection of Jesus the Son. And this is like no city we've ever seen before. So we should take some snapshots like shutter-happy tourists just off the bus before we leave it all together. Somewhere around verse 11, the tour begins. The city is cut from jewels, jasper and crystal and sapphire and agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, amethyst. And the streets are paved with gold so pure that it's translucent. All that that means is this city has a wealth we don't understand. The wealth of our world is the building material in the new heavens and the new earth. You walk on it in the new heavens and the new earth. There's a great high wall around the city. It's unconquerable, indomitable in other words. But inside the wall are cut 12 gates. 12 gates. Three to a wall. Those who are to live in this city with God will have no trouble arriving and entering here. He'll bring them in with ease. There will be no mix-ups in paperwork or documentation or who's to be given residence in this place. At verse 16, the city is a perfect cube. Its dimensions are perfectly proportioned. That's an image that there's only perfection here. There's no brokenness, no division, no strife, no severance, no injustice, no grift, no abuse of power. And then back up at verses 12 and 14, the 12 gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are 12 foundations of the city. 12 foundations the city is built on. Sounds like what homeowners in North Texas need. The city is unshifting, immovable, and the twelve foundations are named for the twelve apostles. We come into this city through the saving promises of the Old Testament, the gates named after the Israelite tribes. And we live in this city on the solidity the firmness of the fulfilled gospel in the New Testament, the foundations named after the apostles. This city is built out of everything that the scriptures and the gospel say to us. You will not be doing Bible studies in the new heavens and the new earth because what God has said, the gospel, is what this city is built out of. It's the infrastructure of the city. We do Bible studies here to try to drag God's love and the radiant truthfulness of Jesus down into our lives. But there, it is the way of life. And there's no temple in the city. Which is comforting for a church like ours without a building. There's no temple in the city because the Lord is our temple. We'll worship in His direct presence, in His immediate presence. We'll live directly before Him. A church, a temple means we're not home yet, but when we are home, 
There's no need for a building like that. And there's no sun because the sin-ruining beauty of Jesus is the incandescence of the place and all the glories of the nations, the best parts of cultures that were reflections of the gospel will receive finishing touches. They'll be made flawless in the undiluted, unmuted gospel of Jesus and paraded through the city to be celebrated. Could you see yourself living in a place like this? Probably not. I have trouble imagining it. Fascinating to read about. I just can't see myself there. Maybe it's because we're so used to living with the scars of sin, the new city sounds a bit oversold. I love this quote from St. Augustine, who at the age of 17 left his little hometown in North Africa to move to the metropolis of Carthage to study rhetoric. In the ancient world, rhetoricians, people who are able to persuade you and change your opinion and emotions, they were the ultimate romanticists. They were rock stars in that world. At 17, Augustine goes to become a person like this. He moves away from his family to live in the equivalent of Las Vegas all by himself. And this is what Augustine says of his adopted city. I came to Carthage where the cauldron of illicit loves leapt and boiled around me. Augustine's city was a cauldron of sin simmering and seething. And New Jerusalem is opposite of that. It's a jewel cut and polished. It's a garden full and lush and always blooming because it's a city not built out of our judgments against God's goodness. That's our sin. Our judging God to not be good. This is a city built out of God's judging in our favor. God's judging us forgiven. The only reason you could say that a city is a cauldron of sin is because our hearts are cauldrons of sin. And when you get us all together, we just make one big cauldron. But while that's the case in any city here, it's not the case with the new Jerusalem. Because in the perfected city, nestled in the perfected cosmos, the people are made perfect in the perfection of Jesus the Son. I hope you noticed it as we went through the chapter. The sense of perfection in this place builds as we go. As the city descends, there's a call that goes up from the throne. Here's the dwelling place of God with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. See, the people will have been changed to be with Him, to fit Him. And how will they have been changed? It's in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, as for those who should have spoken up and, and stood up but didn't, as for the faithless and the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sexual takers, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now don't be mistaken by this list. It isn't just a list of those who are kept out of the city 
There's a second reading to the list. It's also a list of how the inhabitants of the city were changed to live in this place. This list is us in this version. This is what we were. But it's not what Jesus is making us to be now. And it's not what we will be. Jesus refused all of these things in his temptation in the wilderness to set our hearts free of them. Jesus died as all of these things on the cross to set our bodies free. Jesus walked out of a tomb. They carried him in limp. He walked out upright. And his rising means that none of these things can hold us against our will because Jesus has given to us his own tomb-breaking will. Years ago, there was a profile written up on the city of Dallas for the New Yorker, and here's what it read. Dallas presents itself as brash and cocky, infectiously optimistic and full of answers, But anyone who has come to know the city well will recognize a paranoid side. Dallas is thin-skinned, suspicious, intolerant, easily offended, and perpetually hungry for approval. That's our city because that's us. Cities have personalities. They just don't have personalities of their own. They draw their personalities from the people who live in them. And the new Jerusalem is no different according to verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter the city. That's because Jesus has made us pure in himself. Nothing detestable will be there. No one who lives there will do what's false. That's because Jesus will have made us like himself. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's because Jesus has crossed himself out of his own book to write us indelibly in. This isn't a city of law-keeping and measuring up and living just so, just right, checking the list to make sure we can get ourselves in and keep ourselves in. This is the gospel city. We won't have earned our way into this city. We will have been brought into this city in the perfection of the Son. The personality of the city drawn from its residence is that we will have been made perfect in the gospel unable to ever fall back into imperfection again. And we won't be able to fall back into imperfection because the perfection of Jesus will have shut our sin out. Banished it, exiled it, repelled it. The strongest verse of the chapter, maybe the strongest verse of the Savior's love is arguably verse 25. The gates of the city will never be shut. A high wall, an unconquerable city, but wide open gates that never close. The city's afraid of nothing. Philip II of Macedonia was the father of Alexander the Great. And Philip was an intimidating conqueror in his own right. 
He'd conquered all the major Greek city-states and only Sparta was left. You know Sparta, the greatest warrior culture that ever was. So Philip sent envoys into the city to make a play for Sparta's surrender. And through his envoys, he said, You are advised to submit without further delay. For if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, burn your city. And Sparta sent back a one-word reply through the messengers. If. And Philip turned around and went home. This city is perfect because you will have been made perfect because the perfection of Jesus' love and grace and justification will have made your sin turn around and run for its terrible life. Your sin would have to reach over the cross of Jesus, through the cross of Jesus. Your sin would have to reach past the resurrection of Jesus to take you away from Him. And it doesn't have anywhere near that kind of strength because He will have given you His perfection. He doesn't need to shut the city gates. There are no enemies strong enough to enter. No other religion in all the world has an ending like the story of the gospel. It's an ending that isn't really an ending. It's an eternity, which is hard to wrap your head around, but it's worth saying anyway. All other religions tell a story of self-redemption. Live a good life. Live a good enough life. And gain paradise. The world is a trial. Rise above it. And gain admittance to paradise. But the Christian story is the only story through the gospel as Jesus tells it and lives it, that says, you've failed at life, and that's where you expect the story to end. But the second act of the story has Jesus not failing at life and accepting us in himself, not in ourselves, in himself. The full scope of the story reads this way, we had paradise, We lost paradise. We can't regain paradise. So paradise will come to regain us. Paradise will come to make us an active part of itself. No other religion or philosophy has a story quite like that. The part of the story that most excites me is verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I think one of the reasons we miss the gospel is we read passages like this holding them at a distance. So I don't miss the coming joy of the new creation. I try to remember that I won't just live in the new creation. I'll live as the new creation. So I read the verse more personally. Here's the way I read it. Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I will cause no more tears. Not to myself. Not to anyone else. And death shall be no more. 
I won't deal out death the way I do now. The death of hopes, the death of emotions, the death of relationships, the death of love, the death of trust, the death of truth. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. When I worship my idols of selfishness, everyone around me suffers because my idols of selfishness are designed only to enslave you to worship me. But when I worship Jesus, only my sin suffers and all others are served. The former things have passed away. My former self will have passed away. I'm sure it'll be spectacular to see the the city cut of jewels. But to be truthful about it, what will be more breathtaking is to see that the former me has passed away and a new me will have been furnished. A me not just counted in the perfections of Jesus, but wearing the perfections of Jesus like they were my own. So we're left with a question much like we had last week. What do we do in the meantime? We just hurt in our world while we long for the next. Not quite. We hurt in our world and reach for the next as Jesus pulls us toward it. One of the reasons our neighbors have no interest in Christianity is because all they see in us is a rejection of the creation we live in now with no hope for the new creation. The glimmer of the new creation breaking through on the horizon is meant to be seen in you. The new creation is supposed to begin in you now as the gospel transforms you. As the gospel so fills your heart that it fills up the rest of you. Your speech, your emotions, your thoughts, your pursuits, your time, your reactions and reflexes. Isn't it funny that the one place we never talk about the gospel having any effect is in our reactions, responses and reflexes. Like the gospel could actually become our knee-jerk. Jesus has already begun to stir within you the longing, the excitement, the desire, the pleasures of glory through sanctification. And what we mean by sanctification is making you to look more like the one who saved you for himself. Making you look more like the one who's redeemed you. Putting sin to death, putting celebratory righteousness in its place, willingly losing all the wrong things we love too much for all the better eternal things we love too little. I've thought about this a lot over the last weeks as I've fought my own heart. I don't know what it's like for you when you fight your heart, but for me, the experience is like alligator wrestling. It's all teeth and claws and scales and heat and thrashing weight. And after I've fought with my heart, I always climb out of the pit with new scars. So why not just avoid facing my heart at all? Why not just avoid the fight altogether? What would ever possess you to climb down into the pit in the first place? Because Jesus is already down in my pit waiting for me. 
And he's assured that my heart won't win. His heart will win. From down at the bottom of my pit, Jesus is calling to me. Listen, this is what glory, the perfect creation, the perfect city, the perfect you, taste like and feel like and smell like and sound like. The increasing defeat of your reptilian heart. Come down here and fight. Come down here and try it. You may come to crave it. And there's plenty more where that came from. There is only more and more and more of it for you to have. If you're a skeptic, from time to time you may be troubled by the question, what is God doing with the world? He's remaking it from top to bottom, but the reason you can't see it is you keep looking for it out there. He wants to begin remaking the world from top to bottom by remaking you. And if that's at all intriguing to you, Jesus is probably calling you to himself. And Christians, we're always a good bit more selfish with the question. We ask it this way, what is God doing with me? Who cares about the world? Since when have Christians cared about the world anyway? What I want to know is, what is Jesus doing with me? Look, there's still an answer to our wrongly selfish question. Here's what he's not doing. He's not entertaining you. He's not appeasing you. And he's not teasing you either. He's making you a walking preview of the new creation. You can stop fighting against him now and enjoy it. Instead of pulling against him, you can pull with him. I grew up on the Great Lakes. In the place where I grew up, there were enormous sand dunes lining the lake shores. One of our favorite games as kids was to climb a massive dune and starting at the top, we would run all the way to the bottom. All you had to do was lean out, take a single step, and let gravity and the pitch of the dune do the rest of the work. You'd have to make sure to get your feet far out in front of you enough that your run didn't turn into a roll. But if you could do it, the pull would draw from your body longer strides than you ever knew you could reach, and it felt like you were running out of yourself. And if you were really good, you could let the downhill run pull you all the way out into a rolling, laughing splash in the shallows of the lake. And that's what the gospel pull of the glory of Jesus should feel like in you. Running out of yourself as Jesus pulls you home. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Less of ourselves, Lord Jesus, and more of your grace is what we ask. Less of our failing strength and more of your unfailing strength is what we ask. We pray that you would take our scars, our vandalism, our sabotage of your glory and goodness 
your love and your truth and replace them with the fullness of glory breaking in us now, dawning in us now, reaching for us from eternity future through sanctification. We are already the new creation, not in fullness, but it's begun. And there is more of your glory to be had as our hearts give up on their false loves and love more of your gospel. Give us these things and we won't be sorry. And we're always sorry when we ask for more of our idols and you give them. But with more of your grace, there is no sorrow. Oh, for the new me. That's what I long for most. And to have glimpses of it now. Thank you for that grace. We eat and drink together in your name at a table we have not set. You've set it for us with food and drink not prepared by us, prepared by you in the gospel. And we eat and drink to remind ourselves the former things are already passing away and the new things are already being born. Eating and drinking allow us to mortify our sin. Eating and drinking allow us to rise in grace for your glory and for our good. And now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you say you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 